Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. This is Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like the unknown, and I am your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Reefer Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting blurred in podcasting, the troller of trolls, the prince of petty, Steve G. Yeah, and we don't like the unknown. I don't like the unknown, and you don't like the unknown. We fear the unknown. We hate the unknown. That foreign shit. I'm American. Anything foreign is evil. Satanic. It's alien to me. It's foreign to me. I don't know it. I don't like it. If I don't know it, if I don't know about it, I don't like it. That's the mentality of us humans. Not just America, not Canada, not Mexico, not Europe, not Asia. Something that's foreign to somebody, something that we don't know about. Some, there's so many. When you don't know about things, you, you fill your head with these, with your own conclusions. And a lot of the time, those conclusions are wrong. If you don't know what the fuck you're thinking, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, don't know what you're thinking about. Therefore, I hate it. At least I fear it. I discovered a new parking spot at my job. And it is a... There's like a lower tier parking spot below the the main parking area. And if you take the side... There's like a little path, little side path that you can take to get to this lower tier. Now this lower tiered parking spot is dark. It's not as well lit as the main parking area. And it's very wooded. In the outer edges of of our of my job in the parking lot the the borders of it is it's very woodsy there's a lot of trees and it's it's open it's not fenced off or anything it's just open in this in this lower area and from time to time deer pop out so I like this parking spot because it's not as uh, populated. There, there aren't as many cars and fuck people. That's kind of been my general rule of thumb. Uh, now, on the flip side, yeah, it, it's less populated, not as many cars, uh, but it does get dark at night and deer happen to pop out. So the other night when I was getting off and I, I'm heading to my car, and I see this buck, and I'm not talking about Al Bundy's dog. I'm not talking about Giannis Antetokounmpo, Antetokounmpo, I'm talking about the fucking animal on Giannis's jersey. And I, I mean, I, I'm not into, I, I'm not a vet. I, I'm not knowledgeable on animals. It might not have been a buck, but the thing had fucking antlers. And I, I know the buck is the male deer. And this thing was gaunt. It, it was uh, brolic. And... I'm, I'm not familiar with deer. I don't know if they're friendly deer, like the ones I see on Disney movies. I don't, I don't know if they're, if, if they just want some companionship. But the thing wasn't too far from my car, and I, I don't know if that thing has rabies. I don't know if it just wanted to get a nice pet. If it wants to just take a look at my car, I don't know. 
And because I don't know, I'm in fear of that deer. I wasn't going to fuck with that buck. Nah. Maybe if I would have just walked to my car, that buck would have ran away. It might have just stood there. It might have feared me, but I don't know that. That buck don't know me, and I don't know that buck. So I went back into the building, and I waited for that buck to get back in those trees. And I darted to my Nissan Altima. Now, I I, want to say happy Mother's Day. I want to get that out there. Happy Mother's Day to all the mommies. We here at Over the Culture, we love moms. Thank you to all the mommies for feeding us, for birthing us, for for bathing us, for getting the the lint out of our hair, the dandruff, washing our nappy-ass heads, making sure our homework was done, dropping us off to school, picking us up from practice. Thank you, moms. Making our lunches, making our suppers. We love you, mommies. Thank you for the birthdays. Thank you for the Christmases. The cookies, the brownies, the cupcakes. Thank you, mommies. You go, girls. Happy Mother's Day to my mom, Miss Angela Rollison. Happy Mother's Day to my aunts, Daphne and Stacy, to my grandmothers, my great-grandmothers. Happy Mother's Day to my cousins who have children. Happy Mother's Day to my sister. She's a first-time mom this year. I have a nephew, little Amari. Happy Mother's Day, sis. Happy Mother's Day to all my friends with children. Much love. You guys are essential, you know. We kind of need you. Now, I'm just now getting to watch this series, Invincible, on Amazon. It's an Amazon original. It stars Stephen Yoon, Sandra Oh, and J.K. Simmons, uh, an American adult animated superhero television series based on Image Comics series of the same name by Robert Kirkman. Uh, and, it, and it premiered March 25th, uh, 2021. And it revolves around Mark Grayson, a 17-year-old boy whose father, Omni-Man, and his transformation into a superhero under the guidance of his father. And in April 2021, Amazon renewed the series for a second and third season. And I'm halfway through the first season. It's only eight episodes. And I am entertained, to say the least. It is a very good series, and I highly recommend it if you have access to Amazon. If you know how to get around these gadgets and you know how to uh, how to uh, uh, get those sneaky links, I highly recommend checking out Invincible. Uh, something else I seen over the week was the season premiere of Dark Side of the Ring. It's returned, and it's a two-parter. It's a it's a two-hour season premiere uh, featuring the life and focusing on the life of Flying Brian Pillman, R.I.P. And I, I always tell people uh, wrestlers probably have the the hardest, the toughest lifestyles in any kind of performance art or in any kind of uh, physical performing or any kind of performing. 
whether you're a musician, whether you're a comedian. These guys are hitting the road just like musicians and comedians. Uh, and they're putting their lives on the line, not just their bodies. They're putting their lives on the line. And it's a vicious cycle when you get addicted to these these different devices that you kind of need in order to continue doing what you do to make ends meet. As we all know, professional wrestlers have a short shelf life. A lot of them don't make it to their retirement years. They live hard lives relying on these painkillers, these steroids. Some of them partying with cocaine. Some of them smoking crack. It dulls the pain. It gets me from Wichita to Des Moines. To Evanston. I got to do these house shows in Toledo, Ohio. Go Ohio. And then I got to get up early in the morning so I can make it to Detroit for the next taping. Damn, does my back hurt. I got to get another script. Hey, Doc. Fill me up with some more of that cortisone shit. But Flying Brian, he's lived, he lived an interesting life. He was a uh, professional wrestler, as we all know, and he got his first big break as a tag team partner with Stone Cold Steve Austin, who at the time was stunning Steve Austin, and they were known as the Hollywood Blondes. And he climbed the ranks there until the point that he got frustrated, and he was fired from WCW, and he had a, a brief stint in ECW, uh, made a little noise, and then he got the call up from Vince. The the dream, the ultimate dream of, of a lot of professional wrestlers is getting that call from Vince McMahon. And he signed the deal, but lo and behold, he got into a car accident, a really bad car accident. He had to get filled up with staples, put him out of commission, and he was never able to perform but he was able to shoot some great promos. At this time, his buddy Stone Cold was rising the ranks in WWF, becoming a star in the making. And they had a little feud, uh, a memorable feud, but he never got to see the light of day. Flying Brian uh he was eventually let go by Vince because he was a loose cannon. And th that was his nickname at this time, Flying Brian the Loose Cannon. The man was off the rails. And, you know, they, they didn't know he was doing this whole Andy Kaufman thing. You know, they, they didn't know if he was being real. They didn't know if he was pulling a rib on him. People thought he was crazy. Some people thought it was an act the world may never know on October 5th 1997 Pillman was scheduled to wrestle with Dude Love aka Mankind uh, aka Cactus Jack Mick Foley all of that uh, and they were scheduled to wrestle it at a pay-per-view in your house 18 bad blood and Steve Austin relayed that Jim Cornette was instructed to find the whereabouts of Pillman Cornette contacted the budget motel in Bloomington Minnesota where Pillman had stayed the previous night and was told by the receptionist that Pillman was found dead in his hotel room by the maids earlier that day at 109 p.m. Central 
Central Time. He was 35 years old. An autopsy attributed it Pillman's death to a heart attack. And uh, I, I highly recommend Dark Side of the Ring. It's a great series. I believe this is season three that they're in. And, uh, you know, it just a, a crazy life, man. Uh, may he rest in paradise. And they, they talk about uh, the outcome and how his family has coped. He has uh, two daughters and one son, and his, his son even followed in his footsteps. Uh, Brian Pillman Jr., he became a wrestler, and they talk about his widowed wife and uh, her mismanagement of funds and how the, the children ended up uh, living with their aunt, their, their father's sister, their aunt Linda, because their, their mom was just a head case. Uh, she would use the money for drugs, they said. Uh, sometimes they weren't being fed, not taking care of her responsibilities, not paying the bills. And she was getting the, the money through him, you know, receiving his royalties and whatnot and just spending it on herself. So, yes, uh, you know, even if you're not a wrestling fan, I, I strongly recommend it because they're just phenomenal stories. It's hard to believe some people live have have lived these lives. Now, on Friday, T Grizzly released his latest album, Built for Whatever, and it's 19 songs. It's pretty lengthy. It's 53 minutes, 57 seconds, and like I, I, I have this thing for Detroit rappers, man. That they're so dope at what they do. They're quite astute students of this art form we call hip-hop and t grizzly's one of those guys he's from the d and he has a subgenre. i guess you could consider him a drill rapper uh fast pace uh, chief keef like chief keef ish lil dirk i guess you could throw g herbo in there a lot of those chicago guys uh, so, you know, it, it's hit or miss. You either like it or you love it. It's not for everybody. Uh, I, I like some of it. Uh, he has features from King Von, R.I.P., Quavo and Young Dolph, uh, Lil Durk, uh, YNW Melly, Lil TJ, and Baby Grizzly. And, and, and also Big Sean. Big Sean's on there in, in a song, What We Own, and, and it's a dope track. I also like the track he did with Quavo and Young Dolph, In My Feelings. And uh, Baby Grizzly is shining throughout this. Left Wrist Icy is one of the tracks he's in, and he's also in the, the final track, Free Baby Grizzly. It's the outro. And uh, I, I feel like he's done better projects. Uh, I, there's probably about three or four tracks that I added to the playlist, but something that I did really enjoy was this latest project from Sarface and MF Doom, R.I.P. And it's called Super What? It's Zarface and MF Doom. It's it's 10 tracks, 26 minutes, 48 seconds. It's not that long. Uh, their Martin, Martin episodes are longer than this album. But Zarface, I, I wasn't too hip to him uh, until last couple years, but they're an American hip-hop supergroup formed in 2013 by underground hip-hop duo 7L and Esoteric and Wu-Tang Clan member Inspected Deck, who is uh, the 
unspoken hero of the Wu-Tang Clan, in my opinion. My favorite is Ghostface Killer, and today's actually Ghostface Killer's birthday. Uh, you can always tell a lot about a person by their favorite Wu-Tang member. Uh, but back to Zarface. Uh, it's Inspector Deck and 7L Esoteric and MF Doom. They put together this album, Super What? And every song is a banger. It's short, straight to the point, though. Five mics. Five and a half mics. If you love good hip-hop, check out Super What? It starts off with a track, The King and I, featuring Daryl McDaniel, Mr. DMC himself of Run DMC. Uh, this feature from Del the Funky Homo Sapien, THD, and Kendra Morris. And uh, like I said, man, every track is a banger. Um, Inspector Deck, he's been consistent throughout his whole career, but he's one of those MCs who doesn't care about radio hits. He doesn't, need, he, he doesn't look for the radio jingle. He's just a pure MC. I'm, I'm going to hit you with these rhymes, with this wordplay. My mastery of vocabulary. Now, also over the week, I know everyone has seen that Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather Jr. Uh, public fiasco, the staged event. It's so staged. Uh, I, I'll give them their props for, for putting on such an act. And, and that's the new wave of, of promoting things now. Or, or staging publicity stunts for uh, whether you got a new film coming out you got a new album coming out you got a fight coming up oh let's do some shit in public make sure we got enough snappers enough uh snapchatters around uh, enough ig people enough selfies but yeah I, i'm starting to actually like this logan paul guy I, what i didn't know that him and his brother are from ohio he was born, Logan was born in Westlake, which is a suburb of Cleveland, and his brother Jake uh, was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And I mean, hey, get that bag, man. I, I never, who would have fucking thought it would have gotten to this point? Who would have fucking thought? Let, let's say Logan Paul had the foresight five years ago. Let's say he, he's envisioned this, and I don't know, maybe maybe this shit has just been freestyling this whole time. Let's say in 2016, he was like, you know what, one day I'm going to have a match, I'm going to fight Floyd Mayweather. I'm going to have a bout with Floyd Mayweather Jr. This man who's undefeated, who's considered possibly the best boxer, I'm going to have a match with him. Let's say he put that out there. People would have thought he was fucking bananas. He was known for being a Vine guy. He was a YouTuber. A podcaster guy. You're an internet thug. But lo and behold, here we are. 20 fucking 21. This motherfucker is going to have a match with Floyd Mayweather. I got your hat. That is so fucking clever. Love him or hate him, man. He's getting his publicity. And there's no such thing as too much publicity. He's garnering this attention. And like I said, the man has a fight with Floyd fucking Mayweather. Ohio. Now, he might not win. I, I don't know. I, I've seen the man. He's been putting in some work. Maybe he's, he's really actually serious. I don't know. But the fact that he's going to have a fight with Floyd Mayweather, that's big money. Floyd Mayweather, he doesn't leave the house. Mayweather doesn't leave his house for peanuts. 
everybody wins when Floyd Mayweather fights. So I know, hey, I guess this is going to be a thing. The world's going to be watching. Now, like I said earlier, today is Ghostface Killer's birthday. My favorite Wu-Tang Clan member. Ghost. Sun God. Iron Man. Tony Starks. Starky Love. Pretty Tony. P-Tone. Ghostini. The Wallaby Kingpin. Mr. Dennis Coles himself. Born in 1970. May 9th. Wow. 51 years, man. Also, on May 9th, in 1980, Friday the 13th premiered. Now, you talking about fearing the unknown. This was something that I learned in horror class, a horror film course that I took in Bowling Green. And it's one of those things that really resonates with me. Because this was years ago when I was in Bowling Green. And still to this day, it's true. You could apply that to anything. And, and in horror movies, he used Friday the 13th as one of the examples. When you hear that. That's when we're mo- the most fearful. That's when we're really at the edge of our seats. Because you know something is going to happen but we don't know what we know what that sound means oh that's the Jason theme but we don't know when he's going to get her how he's going to get her what he's going to do to her when he gets her we don't know that yet but when he appears on the screen and you see him and he slashes her he grabs her throws her in the lake Camp Crystal oh okay all right, that's what he was going to do. All right. You're not as fearful. You know what he did now. You've seen it. But it's that lead up. Oh my God, what's going to happen next? The Mike Myers theme. Whenever you hear that song, you know what's going to happen. You know something's going to happen. You just don't know what you don't. And and that just eats at us to the point where we're scared. Today in sports history. In 1973, for the second time, Johnny Bench hits three home runs in a game. In 1987, Oriole Eddie Murray is the first to switch hit home runs in two consecutive games. In 1995, the Cleveland Indians tie a record of scoring eight runs before making it out. They beat the Twins 10-zip, go Ohio. And in 2010, Oakland A's Dallas Braden becomes the 19th pitcher to throw a perfect game, four-zip versus Tampa Bay. And that was my half-fast sports report. birthdays for May 9th. Happy 37th birthday to retired American baseball player Prince Fielder. Turning 42 today is American singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, motivational speaker, and music producer Andrew W.K. 
party hard. Also turning 42 today is American actress Rosario Dawson. Ay, ay, ay. Happy 46th birthday to Canadian singer, songwriter, producer, actress, and wife of Grant Hill, Tamia. Happy 51st birthday to American rapper and actor, Ghostface Killer. You fake cats don't hurt at first. Oh, how I shitted on your turf that time. Cuban link first. Happy 56th birthday to Canadian ice hockey player and manager, Mr. Detroit himself, Steve Iserman. Detroit hockey town. Turning 70 today is American actress Allie Mills, the mom from Wonder Years. And turning 72 today is American singer, songwriter, and pianist Billy Joel. Happy 73rd birthday to American basketball player, radio host, and the owner of every loud-ass suit from Houston's Galleria, Calvin Murphy. Nigga looks shiny to me. And turning 75 today is American actress and producer, Candace Bergen. Coming up, I'm going to go over the film Friday the 13th, released on this day in 1980. We'll be black after these messages. Take a picture of this. 
river flow so nasty they just can't ask for more That's why it's called black licorice Flow hotter than a blowtorch, I never show remorse When I kick in the door with my cohorts About to go horse, screaming I don't give a fuck Cause I send a buckshot at your Rolls Royce I rejoice in the pain, angels and demons The voice the same, they wanna try to warn me About the choices I made, but I mean it when I say Divorce in the game, hardcore to the brain And you can't fade this, I done seen it all before Every day same shit, I can take a tame bitch Fuck a renter ass hoe, have it acting like the baddest hoe I got the antidote, little pretty young thing Suck it up as I bust a hot nut on your tongue ring And that's ticklish, I'm twisted and sick as black licorice, bitch Remember this, remember this, write it down, take a picture of this The flow's so nasty, they just can't ask for more That's why it's called black licorice Remember this, remember this, write it down, take a picture of this Cause the flow's so nasty, they just can't ask for more That's why it's called black licorice Hopping over opposition, high stepping, rocking off the noggin. These lines from your brethren, live at 11. You try to accept it, but these lines will blow your mind. Get excedrin, this guy is excessive. Get your mind to my message, rain, speed of snow. I'ma still ride through this weather from July to November for the vibe in December in Ohio. We float up to the sky. Remember, keep your eyes on the ember, let you hit it again. Every time I'm in the cypher, Steve, in it to win. If my mission is mean and your vision is bad, we probably have you running to your mom, pissing your pants. Working with the baby box, we living cabbage patches. We buffing in them cats in them many savage matches. Microphone chrome like a Paul Walk grill. Smoking on a Paul Mall, watching y'all squeal. mention to those no longer with us. Tony Gwynn was an American professional baseball right fielder. Born Anthony Keith Gwynn on May 9, 1960 in Los Angeles, California, he played 20 seasons in Major League Baseball for the San Diego Padres. The left-handed hitting Gwynn won eight batting titles in his career, tied for the most in National League history. He is considered one of the best and most consistent hitters in baseball history. Gwynn had a 338 career batting average, never hitting below 309 in any full season. He was a 15-time All-Star, recognized for his skills both on offense and defense, with seven Silver Slugger awards and five Gold Glove awards. Gwynn was the rare player in his era that stayed with a single team in his entire career, and he played in the only two World Series appearance in San Diego's franchise history. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2007, his first year of eligibility. Gwynn attended San Diego State University, where he played both college baseball and basketball for the Aztecs. He was an all-conference player in both sports in the Western Athletic Conference, but was honored as an All-American in baseball. Gwynn was selected by the Padres in the third round of the 1981 MLB Draft as the 58th overall pick. He made his major league debut the following year and captured his first batting title in 1984, when San Diego advanced to its first ever World Series. 
a poor fielder in college, Wynn's work on his defense was rewarded in 1986 when he received his first gold glove. The following year, he won the first of three consecutive batting titles. Beginning in 1990, Gwynn endured four straight seasons which ended prematurely due to injuries, particularly to his left knee. However, he experienced a resurgence with four straight batting titles starting in 1994 when he batted a career-high 394 in a strike-shortened season. Gwynn played in his second World Series in 1998 before reaching the 3,000-hit milestone the following year. He played two more seasons, hampered by injuries in both, and retired after the 2001 season with 3,141 career hits. A contact hitter, Gwynn excelled at hitting the ball to the opposite field. After meeting Hall of Famer Ted Williams in 1992, Gwynn became more adept at pulling the ball and using the entire field, as well as hitting for more power. He could also run early in his career, when he was a stolen base threat. Wiley considered the greatest player in Padres history, Gwynn regularly accepted less money to remain with the small market team. After he retired from playing, the Padres retired as number 19 in 2004. Gwynn became the head baseball coach at his alma mater and also spent time as a baseball analyst. Gwynn had three procedures to remove non-cancerous growths from his parotid gland beginning in 1997. In 2010, he was diagnosed with cancer of a salivary gland and had lymph nodes and tumors from the gland removed. The operation left his face partially paralyzed on the right side, leaving him unable to smile. Later that year, he underwent eight weeks of chemotherapy and radiation treatments. He was declared cancer-free afterwards and also regained his ability to smile. Additional surgery was performed in 2012 to remove more cancerous growth and address nerve damage. Gwen attributed the cancer to the dipping tobacco habit that he had since playing rookie ball in Walla Walla in 1981. Doctors, however, stated that studies had not linked parotid cancer with the use of chewing tobacco. After his playing career ended, Gwen's weight peaked at 330 pounds and he underwent adjustable gastric banding surgery in 2009 in an attempt to lose weight. He did not closely adhere to the diet and his weight loss began to stall. In 2010, his weight problem led to a slipped disc in his back that affected a nerve down his leg. He needed a walker before he had the damaged disc removed to cure the pain while walking. Later, he experienced a loss of taste for food during radiation therapy for his cancer, and while being limited to a liquid diet, he lost 80 pounds, all of which he regained after he resumed eating solid foods. During another round of cancer treatments in April of 2014, a mishap occurred in which Gwen lost oxygen and was barely able to move. He was sent to rehabilitation to learn how to walk again. On June 16, 2014, Gwen died at Pomerado Hospital in Poway due to complications from his cancer. He was 54 years old. The night before on Father's Day, he had gone into cardiac arrest and he was rushed from his home to the hospital. Mike Wallace was an American journalist, game show host, actor, and media personality. Born Myron Leon Wallace on May 9, 1918 in Brookline, Massachusetts, he interviewed a wide range of prominent newsmakers during his seven-decade career. He was one of the original correspondents for CBS 60 Minutes, which debuted in 1968. Wallace retired as a regular full-time correspondent in 2006, but still appeared occasionally on the series until 2008. Wallace interviewed many politicians, celebrities, and academics, such as Malcolm X, Richard Nixon, Pearl S. Buck, Ronald Reagan, Frank Lloyd Wright, Yasser Arafat, Anwar Sadat, Vladimir Putin, Mickey Cohn, Roy Cohn. 
Wallace interviewed many politicians, celebrities, and academics, such as Malcolm X, Richard Nixon, Pearl S. Buck, Frank Lloyd Wright, Yasser Arafat, Vladimir Putin, Salvador Dali, to name a few. Wallace died in his residence in New Canaan, Connecticut from natural causes on April 7, 2012 at the age of 93. The night after Wallace's death, Morley Safer announced his death on 60 Minutes. On April 15, 2012, a full episode of 60 Minutes aired that was dedicated to remembering Wallace's life. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1980, Friday the 13th was released in theaters. Friday the 13th is an American slasher film produced and directed by Sean S. Cunningham and written by Victor Miller. Its plot follows a group of teenage camp counselors who were murdered one by one by an unknown killer while attempting to reopen an abandoned summer camp. Prompted by the success of John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978, director Cunningham put out an advertisement to sell the film in variety in early 1979, while Miller was still drafting the screenplay. After casting the film in New York City, filming took place in New Jersey in the summer of 1979 on an estimated budget of 550000 A bidding war ensued over the finished film, ending with Paramount Pictures acquiring the film for domestic distribution, while Warner Brothers secured European distribution rights. Released on May 9, 1980, Friday the 13th was a major box office success, grossing $59.8 million worldwide. Critical response was divided, with some praising the film's cinematography, score, and performances, while numerous others derided it for its depiction of graphic violence. Aside from being the first independent film of its kind to secure distribution in the U.S. by a major studio, its box office success led to a long series of sequels, a crossover with the Nightmare on Elm Street film series, and a 2009 series reboot. A direct sequel, Friday the 13th Part 2, was released one year later. There's a legend around here, a killer buried, but not dead. In 1958, at Camp Crystal Lake, counselors Barry Jackson and Claudette Hayes sneak inside a storage cabin to have sex, where an unseen assailant murders them. 21 years later, camp counselor Annie Phillips is driven halfway to the reopened Camp Crystal Lake by Enos, a truck driver, despite warnings from elderly Crazy Ralph. While driving, Enos warns Annie about the camp's troubled past, beginning when a young boy drowned at Crystal Lake in 1957. After being dropped off, she hitches another ride from an unseen person, who chases her into the woods and slashes her throat. At the camp, counselors Ned, Jack, Bill, Marcy, Brenda, and Alice, along with owner Steve Christie, refurbish the cabins and facilities. As a thunderstorm approaches, Steve leaves the campground to stock supplies. Ned sees someone walk into a cabin and follows. While Jack and Marcy have sex in one of the cabin's bunk beds, they are unaware of Ned's body above them, his throat having been slit. When Marcy leaves to use the bathroom, Jack's throat is pierced with an arrow from beneath the bed. The killer follows Marcy into the bathrooms and slams an axe into her face. Brenda hears a voice calling for help and ventures outside to the archery range where the lights turn on. Later, Steve returns and recognizes the unseen killer, who stabs him. Worried by their friend's disappearances, Alice and Bill leave the main cabin to investigate. They find the axe in Brenda's bed, the phone's disconnected, and Ned's truck inoperable. When the power goes out, Bill goes to check on the generator. Alice heads out to look for him and finds his body pinned with arrows to the generator room's door. She flees to the main cabin to hide, only to be traumatized further when Brenda's body is thrown through the window. Soon after, Alice sees a vehicle pull up and rushes outside, thinking it's Steve. Instead, she is greeted by Mrs. Voorhees, a middle-aged woman who claims 
claims to be an old friend of Steve and his family. She reveals that her son Jason was the young boy who drowned in 1957, blaming his death on the counselors who were supposed to be watching him, but were having sex instead. Revealing herself as the killer, she attempts to kill Alice, but Alice knocks her unconscious. At the shore, she tries to kill her again with the machete, but Alice gains the advantage and decapitates her. Exhausted, Alice boards and falls asleep inside a canoe, which floats out on Crystal Lake. Suddenly, Jason's decomposing corpse attacks her, at which point she awakens in a hospital surrounded by a police sergeant and medical staff who are tending to her. When Alice asks about Jason, the sergeant says there was no sign of any boy. She says, then he's still there, as the lake is shown with ripples in the water. The original screenplay was tentatively titled A Long Night at Camp Blood. While working on a redraft of the screenplay, Cunningham proposed the title Friday the 13th, after which Miller began redeveloping. Cunningham rushed out to place an advertisement in Variety using the Friday the 13th title. Worried that someone else owned the rights to the title and wanting to avoid potential lawsuits, Cunningham thought it would be best to find out immediately. He commissioned a New York advertising agency to develop his concept of the Friday the 13th logo, which consisted of big block letters bursting through a pane of glass. In the end, Cunningham believed there were no problems with the title, but distributor George Mansour stated there was a movie before ours called Friday the 13th, The Orphan. It was moderately successful but it was finally resolved. The idea of Jason appearing at the end of the film was initially not used in the original script. In Miller's final draft, the film ended with Alice merely floating on the lake. Jason's appearance was actually suggested by makeup designer Tom Savini. Savini stated that the whole reason for the cliffhanger at the end was I had just seen Carrie, so we thought that we needed a chair jumper like that. And I said, let's bring in Jason. It was the 18th highest grossing film of 1980, facing competition from other high-profile horror releases such as The Shining, Dress to Kill, The Fog, and Prom Night. The worldwide gross for the film was 59 million. Of the 17 films distributed by Paramount in 1980, only one, Airplane, returned more profits than Friday the 13th. Many critics compared the film unfavorably against John Carpenter's Halloween, among them Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, who added, Friday the 13th is minimal on plot, suspense, and characterization. It's not very original or very scary, but it is very low budget. The Akron Beacon Journal similarly suggested that Carpenter's Halloween played like Hitchcock when compared to Cunningham's dreadful tale of butchery. Burlington Free Press wrote that the film copies everything that is, except the quality of Halloween, concluding, the lowest point of the movie comes near the end, when it exploits the genuine grief and madness of the villain. By then, things simply aren't fun anymore. The Statesman Journal noted the film as a routine, endangered teenager's exploitation movie, adding that Cunningham betrays a rather plotting approach to suspense for most of the film, sometimes allowing his camera to act as the killer, sometimes as the victim, and the victims, of course, deliberately put themselves in peril. A significant number of reviews criticized the film for its depiction of violence. The Hollywood Reporter derided the film, writing gruesome violence in which throats are slashed and heads are split open in realistic detail is the sum content of Friday the 13th, a sick and sickening low-budget feature that is being released by Paramount. It's blatant exploitation of the lowest order. The Boston Globe similarly referred to the film as nauseating, warning audiences, unless your idea of a good time is to watch a woman have her head split by an axe or a man stuck to a door with arrows, you should stay away from Friday the 13th. It's bad luck. The film's most vocal detractor was Gene Siskel, who in his review called Cunningham one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business. He also published the address for Charles Bloodhorn, the chairman of the board of Golf Western, which owned Paramount, as well as Betsy Palmer's home city, 
encourage fellow detractors to write them and express the contempt for the film. Attempting to convince people not to see it, he even gave away the ending. Siskel and Roger Ebert spent an entire episode of their TV show berating the film and other slasher films at the time because they felt it would make audiences root for the killer. Leonard Maltin initially awarded the film one star, or bomb, but later changed his mind and awarded the film a star and a half, simply because it's slightly better than part two, and called it a gory cardboard thriller that younger viewers made it a box office juggernaut is one more clue as to why SAT scores keep declining. Still, any movie that spawns this many sequels must have done something right. Contemporary scholars in film criticism such as Tony Williams have credited Friday the 13th for initiating the subgenre of the stalker or slasher film. Cultural critic Graham Thompson also considers the film as a template, along with John Carpenter's Halloween, that instigated a rush of films of its type in which young people away from supervision are systematically stalked and murdered by a masked villain. While critical reception of the film has been varied in the years since its release, it has attained a significant cult following. In 2017, Complex ranked the film ninth in a list of the best slasher films of all time. Happy 41st anniversary, Friday the 13th. That's my Jason. That's my special, special boy. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Please make sure you check out my other show, Happen in the 90s with my buddy Matt G, every Thursday, and our sister show, Crushgasm, with his wife Kendra, every Wednesday. Y'all be cool now. Happy Mother's Day. Peace.